0: Welcome to episode 76 of Love That Album podcast. The 90s are usually identified musically by two big movements, grunge or Britpop. However, there was another scene that was bringing rock back to basics, power pop. While there weren't any bands who claimed mass media attention the way Oasis or Nirvana did, There were quite a few who offered great three-minute pop songs clearly influenced by 60's jangly guitars, catchy hooks and Beatles harmonies, and made many people happy. One such group was New York's Fountains of Wayne. Their second album, Utopia Parkway, is a great summer record. On this episode of the podcast, Morris is joined by host of the all-time top ten podcast, Ben Eisen, to discuss this album, life in the suburbs, the importance of senior proms, and the difference between homage and pastiche. Eric Reanimator's album I Love segment covers a couple of albums from a punk pop group out of Massachusetts called The Charms. If you dug his Swedish pop recommendations, you'll dig this. All this and more on episode 76 of Love That Album.
2: There, Morris speaking. Thank you very much for downloading episode seventy six. Seventy six! I what? can't believe it. What the hell? Of uh, the Love That Album podcast, a little podcast that takes its time. How long going to be? I've been doing this nearly four years, and only up to seventy six. But what the hell? We take our time here. Uh, Morris speaking, and on the other end of the Skype connection, as has already been mentioned by uh, Joanne. We have Mr. Ben Eisen of the All-Time Top Ten Podcast. So count those seconds down till he says hello to you.
3: Hey, everybody.
2: <laughs> How's hey, it going? It's going really well. Thanks very much. We're having a bit of a mutual uh, love-in this month, Ben, because uh, I was just recently on the All-Time Top Ten Podcast discussing you have songs to- about hard times.
3: Yeah, or as they say uh, in your particular neck of the woods, they say... Songs about doing it tough. Yeah, I, right? I think I rather like that a lot better, to be honest with you. I like it too. I've I've never heard it until uh, we started uh, making plans for that episode. But yeah, basically songs about hard times, uh, people dealing with all kinds of uh, stuff, stuff like poverty and drug abuse, and like you know how
2: how they deal with it, right? Mm. That- yeah, correct. That's right. We had uh, I can't say we had a lot of fun because I mean you know that that'd be insensitive to people in hard times. But I did rather enjoy going through those songs, and uh, I, I'm presuming that the episode will be online by the time this mm. show goes online, so uh, people should check that out. And for the one or two people out there who still haven't caught on to the all-time top 10 podcast, and shame on you, please give the listeners a, a bit of a, a rundown as to what the all-time top 10 podcast is all about.
3: All right. Well, um, <clears throat> real briefly, um, you, you said that uh, this, it should be out by the time this comes out? It's going to come out next Friday, so it should be what is that the eighteenth?
2: Well, uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what, what's today the twelfth? Look, I can't record. I can't. Yeah. Anyway, so yes, yeah, so it'll be out by the by the eighteenth of uh, June, yeah. and yeah, this will Let's, be out a, a week after that, I think. So
3: yeah, listen to me and Morris talk about songs about hard times, and uh, you mentioned this is episode seventy six. That particular episode is going to be episode 171. You're just and I, crunching them out. Yeah, we do one, one every week, just about. I think we do about 50 a year. We miss just one, one or two weeks out of the year. And um, basically, it's a, it's a music podcast countdown style. Each week, it's a different topic, and uh, it's a different guest. It's myself and a different guest. And uh, we count them down. We each have our top 10 list, so we play 20 songs plus a bonus track for... Uh, our Facebook and Twitter followers and um, recent uh, podcasts that we've done have included uh, top 10 weird Al Yankovic songs we did. What the hell was it? Well, we just released a uh, top 10 breakup songs, volume two. Mm. We've done two volumes of that and we, it just runs the gamut. We did a whole month of guitar related themes, slide guitar players, heavy metal guitarists, all that stuff. It's just something different every week. And Morris is uh, one of our beloved, uh, semi-regulars. He's been on the show five times and, mm. uh, Look for uh, look for new episodes on iTunes and also at our website, alltimetop10.podomatic.com. And if you want to hear some of those old Morris episodes, all of them are at our archive page at
2: mixcloud.com. Just look for All Time Top 10 there. Excellent. Excellent. And I'm, I'm feeling rather embarrassed. We're going to play catch up here because this is only, I think, your third time on Love That Album. We had uh, two stellar albums uh, that we discussed about in previous shows. We discussed The Kinks' Something Else fairly early on, and yes. The Who's Who's Next, uh, also fairly right. early on. So, um, yeah, it's been been a while since we've had you back, Mr Ben Eisen. We were going to uh, speak, I think, late last year about Fountains of Wayne Utopia Parkway, the album under discussion today. But uh, I think you know, being the working musician you were out on the road so we had to reschedule that but here we are here we are indeed Excellent. so yes indeed we are going to be discussing the uh, album by Fountains of Wayne Utopia Parkway fairly shortly before we get to that we'll take a quick break after the break we'll be having Eric Reanimator's segment an album I love and today he'll be talking about a couple of uh, records by a an American band called The Charms. I'd not heard of them before, but Eric always picks stuff for his album I love segment that's uh, appropriate to the main album of the day, and the music that I've heard I really, really dug. If you uh, have liked Eric's previous recommendation of the Ultra Bimboos, then uh, you'll dig The Charms. It's really strong guitar-based power pop, so um, see what you think of that, and uh, Ben and I will be back in a few minutes to discuss them mountains of Wayne you're listening to love that album
0: all time top 10 top 10 cheesy love songs this song
3: showcases everything that is awesome about Journey bombastic tailor made for the arena everyone's got their lighter out Steve Perry has got his beautiful mane of hair and he's singing about being on the road
0: Whoa! Top 10 rock trios
2: Dinosaur Jr., Jay Mascus, and Lou Barlow, and drummer Murph The
3: loudest band I've ever seen, by the way
1: Top 10 songs about the devil
3: My number 8 is not the greatest song in the world (laughs) It's just a tribute. Fair Uh, enough. This is Tenacious G.
1: Top 10 breakup songs.
4: What's your number four? I gotta do um, The Replacement's answering machine. Nice. Not only is it about the distance, he's using the distance as a metaphor, you know, sort of like where it's like the the relationship's gotten to a point where he's trying to connect with somebody and the extent of the communication is leaving a message on your machine.
0: Top 10 rock wordsmiths.
4: Randy Newman. In a lot of his songs,
3: he plays like a narrator, but the narrator in these songs tells stories but the narrator doesn't always tell the truth, or he has kind of a skewed version of the story he's telling.
2: That's a human foible. That's what we tend to do. It.
1: Top ten sports anthems. A little
2: ditty called Jump
4: Around. Yes, no, easily I, like twenty 000 to thirty thousand students jumping up and down at the same time. It is awesome.
0: Number ten. Number 10 number five, four, three, one. With your host Ben Eisen, all-time top ten.
5: Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two. I want two people.
2: Hallelujah. 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 Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator.
5: Hello, Dee a 1 two three. 2 3 Eric the woman
4: I'm around to talk about some kind of garage power-pop, starting off there with a song called Top Down. The band is called The Charms, and we're actually being talking about selections from two of their albums, the uh, first being the first record, Charmed, I'm Sure, and the second from 2003, and the second record being Strange Music from 2007. Now, I came across The Charms because they were on the Little Stevens Underground Garage tour, back, I believe it was 2006, when I was still living in Minneapolis, they were one of the opening acts, sharing the stage with bands like uh, the Super Suckers and the New York Dolls, who was the band I was really there to see. But, quite simply, the Charms were amazing. They put on a high-energy, fun, poppy, but powerful set. And, uh, wow, that lead singer, this uh, lev I mean, I, I don't don't know if I've ever seen a woman on stage quite like her. She, she had the command and the presence of, I don't know, maybe a Joan Jett or a Susie Quattro, and I was just, I was amazed. So I uh, had to go check out the band, and uh, what I found was a great power pop band, and let's take a listen. I'll come back and talk a little bit about who they are and where they're from. 2002 in Somerville, Massachusetts. The Charms definitely have that power pop thing going on, but they've got that Farfusa garage rock, and they've got the energy of that era, that high-energy rock and roll, which I've spoken about before. I think what really sets them apart from the pack is the well, the Farfusa, but also the power in L.E.D.'s vocals, and some of the songs that I played there didn't really necessarily completely bear that out, but you have to trust me when I say that they were, they were Revo, Revelation, that's the word I'm looking for, Revelation Live. And uh, I did actually go up to their table after the set, of course I wanted to buy one of their albums, and uh, they were super nice. Um, it was LA, B and the Keyboard who were there, and they chatted with them for a couple minutes and picked up that first record. And uh, all the songs we've heard so far from that first record, and the one that's playing now is called Snowflakes on Velvet, which sounds like a great title for Giallo. So um, I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna play a couple tunes off of their Strange Music album, which is probably their most commercially available. It was on Little Stephen's Little Cool Records. The band had been on hiatus for a while. It sounds like they kind of fell off the map in late, you know, the late aughts, somewhere around 2008, 2009. Sounds like they took some time off to uh, raise family and that kind of stuff. But uh, if you like what you hear, check them out. Um, I am going to try this summer. At least summer here in the States, so June, July, August. That I'm going to try and cover stuff that's going to be seasonally appropriate stuff that is poppier music and things that uh, you can drive around in your car or ride your bike or whatever you do. Of course, being safe as possible and enjoy and play around others with the barbecue or whatever. So I'm going to play a little bit more from their Strange Music album and get out of here. Uh, I will note that on the screen-piece album, they did get a little more climbing and a little more uh, out there with their sound. Not out there bad, but a little more experimental, which I never think is a bad thing. So, this is Eric Green Animator, and we've been talking about the Charms, and they are, well, I've been putting the pun all morning while I'm recording this, or whatever it is. Um, they're charming. So, Eric Reanimator, Animator, the children.
1: A little taste of So forward thinking, you stay
2: and we're back thanks very much eric for another great album i love segment and he'll be back next month no doubt with uh, another great segment and also please check out eric's ongoing series of compilation edition episodes of uh, love that album this month he's gone back surprise surprise to the helicopters talking some uh, great garage rock at the helicopters and uh, a band with the great name of Adam West. And uh, I don't think there's any Batman-related songs in their repertoire, but uh, some really great garage rock, so please check. That's, I think, episode 16 of the uh, compilation edition series, so uh, if you want to hear some more great stuff from Eric Reanimator, Anyway, this time round I have Ben Eisen on the other end of a Skype connection, which I hope will hold up. Um, yes. And we're going to discuss the uh, second album, or the sophomore album, as uh, you Americans like to call it, from uh, Fountains of Wayne, Utopia Parkway. I'm going to ask you, so last year, when we first discussed about doing another episode of That Album, uh, your original choice was not the Fountains of Wayne, but it was going to be uh, the Blue Album, as it's called, by a Weezer. And I pretty much said to you, look, I'm not really a great fan of Weezer. Uh, is this something else? And then you came across, uh, or you mentioned uh, Utopia Parkway by Fountains of Wayne. So I want to ask you: Is at the start, was this the album that you first heard by them? And how did it appeal to you?
3: Um, it is the, the album I first heard by them, and I can't even—I was racking my brain all week trying to remember how I heard about them and what what spurred me to go get the the, the CD back in you know 1999 when it came out or 2000 whenever I got it and I honestly cannot think of how I know how I heard about it I really have no idea but I was at uh, just a store and I was like oh, Founds of Wayne I keep hearing about these guys I, I, I want to check this out And Were they played on local radio? No, not at the time I mean the, the, the third album yes Welcome Interstate Managers had that you know Stacy's Mom was a massive hit so that was just everywhere but this, this one I, I don't know I don't know where I heard it from but uh I instantly fell in love with it, you know, when I first got it just played it nonstop for months and months. Right. And it does remind me of that first Weezer album and, and you know, just being this sunny fuzzy power pop. I'm kind of uh, curious as to your reason why you don't care for that record. Or, I mean, I, I get the loathing for Weezer now, uh, but and when they came out, I could see it then because it was so different from everything else that was coming out, You know, so much more pop-based than all the Seattle stuff. But looking back on it, I, I see nothing but a great record, but that's just me.
2: Look, uh, I, I, I understand that a lot of uh, people have, they do see that sort of power pop in Weezer, and I don't want to sort of like make this a a big Weezer segment or anything like that, but I I guess pretty much, I I confess, i would not listened to the Weezer album a whole number of times, I mean, probably like half of once. But the songs, the songs that I heard, it didn't strike me so much as power pop. I, I know that there's, it's trying to venture into that sort of territory, but it sounded more like, oh, I don't know, I, I really can't say that the melodies interested me that much and it didn't sort of have that bright, sunny pop feel that Fountains of Wayne do. But uh, look, I, I tried even for the course of uh, research for this show, trying to give that a, a bit of another listen and I sort of think well no my initial feelings about it still hold you know come back 12 months from now and see what I think
3: <laughs> well I mean if it's if it doesn't move you it doesn't move you that's mm-hmm. totally fine mm-hmm. but uh, this album uh, Utopia, Utopia Parkway to me is just a perfect example of power pop in mm-hmm. the 90s, the uh, late 90s early 2000s and these guys Chris Collinwood and Adam are just they're brilliant
2: songwriters. Mm. Look, I heard their first record before this one, so because I remember actually here in Melbourne, we have public access radio station Triple R, and on their breakfast program, they were flogging the first album uh, when that came out. I think back in 1996 or 1997, and the songs I think I think it was probably they were the singles "Radiation Vibe" and "Sink to the Bottom with You" were. Uh, being played all the time and I remember at the time thinking, oh yeah, these songs are okay you know, I, I wasn't sort of like full on sold at first, I mean now I'm crazy about it but at the time I was sort of thinking, yeah, this is this is interesting but the song that really won me over was a, uh, a song called Sick Day
1: Check out the girl in the harbour tunnel Crawling to work Six feet under every day They're all chewing come And laughing at the voice On the crackling radio station Lead us not into Penn Station Cause the best part's just being
2: I don't actually think that it was a single, but it was just an album track that they were playing. And for me, it was a perfect combination of the slow, wistful melody and a really great turn of phrase in the lyrics in describing people working in an office environment, wishing that they were somewhere else. And the the observation of uh, minutiae, people's ordinary existence, just fascinated me. How they were able to put that into this three minute pop song, and it, it just spoke to me of a songwriter who really paid attention to what was going on around him. And also, probably this, and this might be of interest to you. For the brief time that uh, I decided that uh, learning how to play the bass was going to be for me, this was the first song that I learned to play on the bass. So <laughs> there right. you uh, There's a there's a little. Connection with that.
3: One one of the things that makes their songwriting so great is because, much like Ray Davies or Paul Weller of, of the Jam and people like that, they can look at a slice of life and like the minutia of every everyday living and put some poetry to it, and of course, it's a fantastic melodies. I was uh, looking at uh, the reception that Utopia Parkway got when it came out. And um, it was universally loved, except for one
2: publication. Pitchfork.
3: <laughs> yes, of course, uh, they hate everything.
2: So, <laughs> I, I think that's. I think that's probably a good guide as to whether you'll like something or not. Pitchfork hated it. You'll think, all right, it's going to have merit.
3: Yeah, and I, and I and I was reading the the Pitchfork review, and the guy just i forget his name who wrote it but he totally didn't get it he totally didn't understand what uh what fountains of wayne and and and, you know what they're all about this this is a quote from the pitchfork review and um it just struck me here um this album is suburbia perfectly captured by four suburbanites with suburban sounds neon sod and concrete pressed into dat plastic Perhaps their accomplishment is to be commended, but then again, it's suburbia and how banal is that? If an album could ever be accused of being too nice, this would be it. Nothing offends, no sound feels out of place, no vocal is out of harmony, and you know what? It's boring. Move to the city or the woods. Like, yeah, that that drove me crazy to read. Like, you, dude, you obviously don't get what they're trying to do here. I mean, you you nailed it to the T. It, it's you know neon sod and concrete like it's it's suburbia. The sound of suburbia and other b- great bands over the years have done that as, as well as Mountains of Wayne like like the Kinks and uh, this should be commended. I don't I don't I don't see it as boring at all. I think it's a, it's an interesting slice of life that you don't get by listening to you know whatever the indie flavor of the month band is that looks cool that sounds cool but doesn't have any good songs
2: Right, you know? exactly there's
3: so, there's so many bands that Pitchfork loves that are all about that they're all about just looking cool and sounding cool and they don't give a, you know a rat's ass about the songs Sounds the the opposite because they don't look cool <laughs> but they write great songs you know so yeah. Yeah, look I just is- want
2: to I want to touch on for a couple of minutes about this whole notion of suburbia because I think it's it's a different thing here in Australia to how it might be in, say, like the States because I know that in the States there's often this thing about people either live in the city or they're living in suburbia and not you know, that's we're not sort of like considering for a second the country cousins but um, it seems like if you're living in a city then it's the well so the big city or you're living out in the suburbia whereas here in in say like Melbourne Sydney Brisbane, adelaide, people live in the suburbs you know the the cities as we call them are more like central business district. that's not to say people don't live there but it's a minority. most people live in the suburbs the people who write the songs are from the suburbs. And it also seems to me that a lot of the people who buy the records are from the suburbs. And so Pitchfork is basically saying, we're going to piss on the people who buy the records that are about you. There are some songwriters who've gone and taken a Mickey out of it, uh, you know, like people like, uh, you know, Ben Folds, who went and wrote his whole album, Rocking the Suburbs.
0: I'm rocking the suburbs!
2: Ben Ben Folds is one of Pitchfork's biggest enemies.
3: They can't. They, they automatically hate everything he does, no matter what it is. There's this elitist attitude that comes from pretty much. It's localized in Los Angeles and New York. People that live in those two cities look at everything else as flyover country, for the most part. I mean, I live in Los Angeles, but I'm from flyover country, so I take exception to that. Um, if you if you don't live in the city uh, of Los Angeles or the city of New York, then you're you're missing out you're not you don't you're not really living you're you're boring you, you know and uh it's it's a very elitist attitude and it, and it's it's really kind of gross mm. you know and so the entire rest of the country according to a lot of these people people that write for pitchfork especially their lives are just are, you know are what fountains of wayne sing about and to them that doesn't mean anything so yeah
2: yeah so let's move on a little bit to talking about the environment of the 90s, because I think it's fairly important to sort of put Fountains of Wayne into the context with which they were performing. So, you know, the whole thing about the 90s is when you, you know, when you talk about the big cultural musical movements, you, we think about either grunge of the early 90s or Britpop. That came in the mid 90s
3: and the dominance of hip-hop
2: right right i, I mean i like gotta confess i probably that was less within my radar i guess but yes um yes. and we wouldn't necessarily call power pop a movement but looking back there seems to be like there were you know a number of artists who artistically sort of came to the fore if not necessarily had uh, mainstream attention but looking back I'm I'm wondering what, I can't even remember whether the term power pop was commonly used for artists like you know Matthew Sweet or or Fountains of Wayne at the time or whether it's just been in retrospect that we've gone and labeled okay guitar based pop that had some sort of 60s influence whether we've called it power pop just in retrospect I'm not really quite sure
3: I don't I don't know the 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 origins like exactly when that phrase was was coined a uh, power pop but when you look it up, you know, the definitions of it, it seems to be centered on the late 70s, early 80s power pop. You know, bands like Squeeze
2: and Joe Jackson. and. No, you know what, I don't I don't necessarily agree with that. I know that a lot of people will say that acts like Squeeze and Joe Jackson and, for that matter, progenitors like um, the Raspberries Knack. and uh, the, the Knack and Big Star, we tend to sort of like, in retrospect say right a lot of these bands were the influence for what became power pop in the 90s and in the noughties and there's certainly labels which have been putting out uh you know compilations and acts that might not necessarily be as famous as some of uh you know those bands that we've you know that we've mentioned but are certainly flying the power pop flag but i don't think that that label if and we we are talking about know, putting a label over something, which is not always necessarily a bad thing. But I don't think that those acts were ever called power pop at the time. It's only been in hindsight. And I think it's more or less applied to acts from the 90s. Yeah. I
3: mean, but, but I think um, maybe the term was coined in the 90s and then they right. went back. They went back and you know mentioned Big Star, oh, and and one of your uh, countrymen, Rick Springfield, stuff like that. Like, oh, oh, that was power pop. You know, it wasn't at the time, but maybe maybe in the '90s, that's when it became an idea that this all all this music from that time should be lumped together in this. Like I, th- this I think
2: I think that might be the case because at the time, a lot of that music was the mainstream. It was what was, okay, I mean, okay, granted, Big Star only sort of has become, uh, and it's still not like, you know, hugely massive across the board, but what was an, uh, you know, a couple of absolutely perfect albums that were ignored, completely ignored at the time. And now, you know, they want to be able to sort of fly the power pop flag to something. So they say, all oh, right, well, of course, you know, Big Star was the power cop, the power cop, power pop precursor mm-hmm. but at the time even though it was not massively big or anything like that but it was just they were they're were a band that were trying to be a, another successful band in the mainstream it, there, there were other bands which and by rights there were other bands which were making it big or had made it big and there was no reason why they couldn't but you know power pop is like come to represent an ideal which is no longer the mainstream it's like okay we have to make this a niche to say that we're going to follow on the ideals of sixties and seventies bands, which were jangly guitar bass bands. I mean, you know what next? I mean, do we say the Beatles were power pop, or the early sixties Beatles style was power pop? No, we don't. But it serves as an influence to bands which play like that style from the nineties and, and uh, up to up to now. That's the origins of power pop is the Beatles, absolutely. So, so the other the other point I wanted to bring up about that was, and this is certainly applicable to some bands. Which, as I said, you know, might be on some of these more power pop labels, but without bands which might be sort of like localized groups and end up on compilations, or might have like a local following, or or you know, just maybe a bit more of an underground following, and they're following those ideals. Some bands can sort of like walk the fine line between being influenced by power pop or being a pastiche. Of power pop. They're not necessarily adding something new. I mean the music might be great but it's walking too much in the territory of what was and trying to sound too much like a 60s song if that makes any sense and to me Fountains of Wayne are a band which they, they definitely, you can definitely tell where they've had their influences but they sound very much in, well when I say in the now like when, if, if we were here in the 90s we'd say they sound very much of the now rather than trying to sound too much like a pastiche of what a a, 60s sounding pop band would sound like they're not trying to sound like the Beatles or the Kinks but they're definitely they're influenced by it rather than being dictated by it
3: yeah well there's there's a perfect example of that and uh that you should look to the film that thing you do
2: I was gonna bring that that's, up. Yep. Yep.
3: yep. And uh, you know, of course, um, one of the two main songwriters in *Fountains of Wayne*, Adam Schlesinger, co-wrote the theme song for that theme- thing you do. And holy cow, is that a? It was a pastiche. <laughs> I mean, that's it's exactly like something that would have come out in 1964 when that when that movie was set. And it's it's definitely an homage to Mop Top era Beatles and *Fountains of Wayne* sort of sounds like that in a way but they take they definitely have a a more cooler stance to those you know they have this pretty much the same chord changes and the same melodies going on but their lyrics are a little more nerdy and goofy to more fit in with the times you know but you can see the 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 germ of it in that thing you do i mean it's it's unabashed beatles love all over that song and man is that a great song thank god it's a great song because you hear it about 300 times
2: in that movie <laughs> you, do, you do I mean look there's uh, that's that's the thing I mean every other song in that, in that film it's trying to be like you, you've got the singer who's trying to do the uh, the brill building type of thing and there's, uh, you've got the, the soul singer type thing going on and, but yep. I don't think any song in that film uh, just hits the heights that Adam Schlesinger actually sort of reached with that thing you do. And I was listening to um, the Soda Jerker podcast, which is a really great show coming out of England. Uh, these uh, The two guys who host it, uh, they interview songwriters and talk about their songwriting technique. And they interviewed Adam Schlesinger. And he was just one of a multitude of songwriters who just sort of put a song forth to try and get in this film. And the brief was write something that has that Beatlesque 60s poppy flavor. So he basically said, all right, okay, I'm going to do something that follows that realm. Whereas, you know, and they they actually asked him the question, do you find it easier to sort of, you know, write in, to craft something for your band Fountains of Wayne or to, you know, sort of write to spec where you're given a brief, you know, write something for the Tony Awards like he did in you're given a brief you have to write something in this style or or in the case of that thing you do write a 60s pastiche or do you find it just easier to sort of write something for your your pop group and i just found it fascinating how he sort of elaborated on how he sort of went through the two levels of thinking how he's easily able to sort of separate so i can do that and i can write for my pop group i don't find one method easier or the other but i am able to separate and write something to a brief like that and i just found it really really fascinating
3: yeah well any, anything he does I'm on board with you know he actually won a Grammy for best comedy album because uh, he wrote uh songs for uh, Stephen Colbert's Christmas album right right yep. <laughs> you know he can do anything you know he, well, he's written hit songs for bands like click Five and the jonas brothers and bands like that you know he can write songs for other people easily
2: and it's interesting that you mentioned stephen colbert because um there's certainly a strong sense of humor that finds its way through the fountains of wayne's songs and yeah and that's probably certainly a fine line that once again we have to take between writing songs that are humorous but not necessarily comedic. We're not talking comedic in the weird Al Yankovic sense where the whole rhyme and reason is to make you laugh as opposed to taking a song which will put something, a sly dig at something and you sort of know that they're making uh, something that's more blackly humorous rather than bust a gut laugh out loud type humorous.
3: Yeah. Like you listen to red dragon tattoo. That's a funny song. Mm. And uh, you know, it's like laser show. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of that song, no, but, no but that's, so, that's one of the weak points on the album. from the that's, that's probably probably the most throwaway song on the record. But there's funny lines in there, you know, ch- chasing Jason, uh, Kirk and Lars, you know, just little little pop culture references like that. I think it's kind of cute.
2: You've already gone and mentioned Red Dragon Tattoo, and we've sort of got to uh, get around to discussing some of the individual songs. So let's let's talk a little bit about that.
1: gonna take a ride on the air.
2: i heard this not musically but it sort of reminded me i guess a bit because of the subject matter of uh this, another song by by uh, the who from their who sell album called tattoo You know, uh, yes. a guy guy who walks into the tattoo parlor for reasons p- possibly of machismo or, and, and this and but uh this is this is a song about well i'm trying to do this to impress the girl you know now do you want me
3: yeah it's Red Dragon Tattoo is finally on me. I got it for you, so now do you want me? Mm. Yeah. I love Yeah, Once again, the pop culture references are, are adorable. I mean, it, I guess it's a little dated to bring up Corn, the band. <laughs> you know. It, if it if does date stop, itself to that song. Yeah. You stop pretending I've never been born now that I look a little more like that guy from Korn. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I love the sweetness behind that song because it's like...
2: Yeah, you, you just defaced yourself, but I did it for you! Yes, it, it's, it's lovely, because it's there's nothing bitter about it, and, and um, I, I guess something that we haven't mentioned yet, but it's going to probably come up a lot over these songs, it's a very summer-sounding album. Absolutely, and, it's perfect for
3: the summer. Mm, yeah.
2: I think that you know every word in this song, and, and basically a lot of um, Schlesinger and Collingwood's uh, songwriting, is uh, it's deliberately picked, a both humorous effect but also to put the listener in the place of the protagonist and you really have some empathy for this guy you know even if you never want to you know plant a tattoo anywhere on your body at any stage of your life but you put yourself in this guy's shoes he's really a great writer. of a, is it empathic or empathetic i'm not quite sure but uh putting yourself in this place
3: yeah and i want i want to mention real quick uh we've talked a lot about adam schlesinger And Chris Collingwood is uh, the other main songwriter in the band, and he doesn't get a lot of the accolades because he doesn't really write for other people and do other things, Um, but a huge, huge part of the charm of Fountains of Wayne about their their sound is his vocal, because Chris Collingwood is the lead vocalist in Fountains of Wayne, and the songs wouldn't work. They wouldn't, you know, Red Dragon Tattoo wouldn't be anywhere near as charming and, and cute and funny and sweet if his vocal wasn't there. It's, it's, his voice has personality to spare, you
2: know? Well, actually, I was going to bring uh, his voice up as a separate thing. I'll, I'll just, I'll come back to that oh. in a minute. I, um, <laughs> just one last thing I wanted to say about Red Dragon Tattoo, given that I know that your feelings lie the same about uh, this group. I wanted to know. Did you think that this song would have made like a really great song by Jeff Tweedy? Does this song sound to you like it belongs on Summer Teeth?
3: Oh yeah. Yeah, I never thought of that, but this definitely has a a being there Summer Teeth kind of
2: vibe to it. Without without the darkness of uh, lyrics that Jeff Tweedy indulges in on those on those albums, but musically especially with the uh, the little synth flourishes that end up on this song yeah it little, really sounds uh, like it belongs on summer teeth to me because that was pop but with those little synthy flourishes that we so- certainly uh, hear on uh, some of those late 70s early 80s records
3: yeah that was wilco in, in power pop mode there mm. and uh yeah it, it's definitely uh definitely a good correlation there and i, I wish uh I guess it, Red Dragon Tattoo was not released as a single, but I think it should have been.
2: I seem to think that it was, or if it if it wasn't, then um, that station I mentioned before that played the uh, the first Fountains of Wayne album, they were playing Red Dragon Tattoo a lot, so I just presumed it was oh. a single. I'm not 100 percent certain, but yeah, that was that was getting a, a big flogging on uh, on the no, radio down here.
3: No, yeah, well, we didn't. I didn't hear it on the radio at all. Um, I think the only single that was released in the US was Troubled Times, but I'm not sure. But
2: Red Dragon Tattoo would have been a great single. Mm, Okay, so look, you've gone and mentioned about uh, Chris Collinwood's singing voice. So it seemed to be a thing of pop singers of that era. Where charming is a charming is a good word, but it seemed to be a thing, and I guess this also applies of female singers. If you sort of weren't familiar with the production techniques or the actual performance at the time, if someone was to go and put on a CD of a band from that time, you'd know it was the 90s because there's, there seemed to be a thing of singers trying to sound like not just naive or young and innocent but actually sounding very childlike and Chris yeah, Collingwood's that's, that's... voice does have that childlike sound of it and I'm struggling at the moment to sort of think about who else I could compare it to who else did that but it seemed to me that there's a lot of those singers, I tend to call it the, um, the Grey's Anatomy effect because it always seems to be a, a song at the end of the show that has that sort of very flattened out voice. And it, it's, it's not trying to be overly emotional or underwhelming. It's, it's just that I'm, I'm not articulating this well enough, but Chris no, Collingwood certainly falls into that boat.
3: I definitely know what you mean. Um, I would, I would suggest Jeff Tweedy as one example. I, I would just say, uh, Stephen Malcolmus of, of Pavement. Has that too, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, Matthew Sweet has that that childlike innocence in his in his vocal.
2: Yes, I can sort of see that, but he's able to emote a little bit more so than <laughs> um, than Chris Collingwood does. And yet, I sort of thought that maybe that's just the way he did it. And yet, there's. Um, when you go to uh, an album like uh, Walter, Welcome Interstate Managers and there's um, a song that I absolutely adore Hallie's Waitress And
1: when she finally appears It's like she's been away for years It's been so long So long Darling, don't you know that We miss you
2: You know, we miss you oh. He seems to sort of like a moat, A lot more in that than he previously had and the funny thing is that all the emotion he's putting into this song is just about a guy who's wanting to get a cup of coffee from a disinterested waitress and yet it's still sort of recognizably him doing what he does and yet it seems like he's trying to take his voice a little bit further
3: you you, you hear it just a little bit on a couple of tracks off Utopia Parkway as well like you know prom theme
1: Forget each other's names We'll grow old and lose our hair It's all downhill from there But tonight we'll reach for the stars
3: Very sad sounding, you know. He, he fits those lyrics very
2: well. He, he's a little more versatile than than he than he leads on, but it's very subtle. Right. Wanted to make mention of something. We'll, we'll come back to how he attacks the vocals in that. But prom theme sounds to me like uh, a great song that Ben Folds never wrote. I'll, I'll come back to this interview that I heard him do on the uh, on the Soda Jerker podcast, and he said he said in that. There were there were songs that he and chris wrote they liked to it's how they pursued the music and it's, it's like a, a common topic on this podcast where we talk about songs actually we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago on the all-time top 10 where there are songs where musically they're telling one story and lyrically they're telling another and as a twist on that, Adam Schlesinger goes and says in this interview, they're not necessarily it's not necessarily a thing of telling a different story, but they're taking a lyric that on paper might really seem to be about something that's not necessarily so important, but then they bring in the music and they make it something that's far more important than what it is. Uh, and there, there are examples of that on this album. But yet, prom theme is a song where he definitely says, "Right, okay, well, this has to be. This has to sound like the last song that the king and queen of the prom walking out of the prom to." uh, And it's here because the prom is not necessarily such uh, a big deal like what we see in the movies. You know, it is in um, in America. But you know, he brings this, they bring musically this pomposity to uh, to the song, and I'm sort of wondering, you know, is this song? Making fun of the idea of the prompt, or is he being completely serious? I'm not. I'm not really quite sure. What do you think?
3: I think he's being serious. I mean, a lot of the stuff they do is tongue in cheek, you know, like laser show. Um, but uh, and this this one, it, it seems really sincere, and it's uh, going back again to that look at suburbia, look at the common people's lives, you know. And um, this is a huge moment for a lot of people in the, in flyover country, you know, quote unquote. It's like uh, the the line that kills me. He says, uh, uh, "Here we are at last, running out of gas. The air is getting thick. The girls are getting sick. We'll pass out on the beach. Our keys just out of reach. Soon we'll say goodbye. Then we'll work until we die." Mm-hmm. You know? It's like like this is just another rite of passage in that that the life that people in the suburbs live, you know. And but it's it's your last gasp of freedom before you just you know, resign yourself to the slog of, of the nine to five and, you know, the factory and all that other stuff. So basically he's so. gone and done in
2: three minutes, what it took a couple of hours for, uh, for George Lucas to do an American graffiti or, or what, um, uh, oh, I forgot my director. I'm, I'm going to sh- kick myself link. later on. It did in days and confused link later. Oh, Linklater. That's right. Yeah, Yep. So yeah. it's basically, it's a very short encapsulation of those films, the same sort of thing.
3: Yeah. I didn't, I didn't hear
2: any uh, tongue in cheek irony in that song at all. No, no. Look, I, I guess, I guess that makes sense. I mean, cause lyrically, you know, when you mention lyrics like you did, that does make sense. Uh, that it, it is, uh, it is basically, you know, a tribute to those kids who um, are going to have to say, or, or, well, already they're cynical, you know, because like at, at age eighteen they're saying, right, we know that we're going to have this nine to five thing. They, it almost seems like a really sad sort of thing. They've they've gone and seen their parents, what their parents have turned into, and they've given up their ideals. And but they're, they're saying, right, but tonight we will sing our prom theme, and yet the music. Is I guess what made me think. Hang on, is this uh, making taking the Mickey out of it, or, or it, it, we get the orchestra swell? Uh, yeah, I think it's
3: beautiful. I, I, I yeah, I, I, I think it's totally sincere, but I could be wrong. That's just my opinion.
2: No, no, look, I'm, I'm inclined to sort of go your way. I think on this now because because uh, yeah, those, those lyrics they're really they're they're heartbreaking without trying to be. Um, yeah. Wearing the heart on the sleeve,
3: and that's that subtle bit of sadness that uh, Chris Collingwood, Collingwood uh, adds to the vocal there. And it's just very,
2: very subtle. Mm. So let's come back to um, a couple of the other songs because we're already sort of we're talking about the walking that fine line between being inspired by power pop, or oh, being inspired by sixties and seventies uh, jangly guitar pop, and taking and just sort of trying to let it dictate rather than be inspired by it so let's talk about a couple of the really good songs before we sort of like talk about the one really well for me and and it seems like for you as well really weak song on uh, the album that sort of takes a makes is more of a pastiche the title song in the album utopia parkway well i've been saving for a custom band For me, and I probably represent something different for you because you're actually sort of like the working musician. But on Utopia Parkway, the character is someone that I identify with very much. You know, the musician from the suburbs, with yes. know, the dreams to aspire to that, but has to end up doing the day-to-day stuff. And the character is waiting for his big break while, hopefully, you know, putting up all those posters on his walls that you know will be ignored. And nowadays, it's Facebook walls. Uh, it's quite poetic that even though um in queens there's a a real utopia parkway the name also stands as an ideal for where the the teenage musician hopes to get you know the road to his ideal spot of fame and fortune and i just i just really love what this song represents and it's it's musically it's a it's a great slow to mid-tempo rocker which you know tells the other side of the story from from the, the the protagonist's ideals, it's not brash and exciting, and it's not like, say, uh, uh, the opening of like uh, "Get the Knack," uh, which is "Let Me Out." You know, that's a that's a real statement of intent. We're gonna we're gonna really get out there, and we're gonna play this, and you're gonna love it. Or you know, Queen saying "We will rock you." No, this is just an ordinary guy uh, <laughs> in the suburbs who's saying, "Well, I've got this ideal, and I hope to get there, but let's see what happens." It's a lot more modest. Yeah. This is like
3: rocking the suburbs a little bit, and right. it's like you know, I'm 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 living in a nowhere town, um, but you know, and, and I only have so so far to go. I can't. I don't. I don't live in New York or LA. I guess well, it could be New York, but I don't live in you know, a town where you can become a super global superstar. All I can do is like reach. You know, my my cover band's gonna gonna make money, and I'm gonna I'm gonna have a living as a you know musician or whatever. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to have that B plus life, mm-hmm. you know, so um, and that's fine with me because this is where I live. You know, I'm, I got it made. I got it down. I'm the king of this island town, saving for a custom van, playing in a cover band. Uh, my baby doesn't understand why I never turned from boy to man. Yeah. And this is just another, you know, slice of life. Kind of like uh, what's the first song off of uh, Rock in the Suburbs? Uh Zack and Sarah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Zach. This is that guy. This is Zack. This is his theme song, you know. He's, he's gonna get a he's gonna get a new amp, he's gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna be the king of this little town. Which right. isn't much which which isn't much, but that's okay by me, you
2: know. I'd be interested to know whether um uh, fans of Wayne and Ben Folds were uh, mutually fans of each other at the time. I w wouldn't doubt it. Mm. The other the other sort of really great poppy song and this this one because of one instrument, it it sort of borders on, oh yeah, yeah. He's, he's trying to walk into the uh, '60s. Is it pastiche? Is it not? But it's just such a great song. I don't care. And it's Valley of now.
1: You put the mirror shades The cow and the sorry the trap driver...
2: Big big fan of it's got it's a farcifer organ, isn't it? Yes it is. And I love the sound of that and no, I don't care, it can take a can make a shit song good and make a good song great and um, I, I, I just called, love the sound of this one.
3: I think it's called a farfisa.
2: Farfisa.
3: Far pizza. Yeah, I love that organ sound, it's just so cool. It's sort of uh I have never I'm not a huge smash mouth fan. But that song, Walking on the Sun, is actually a pretty good song. and This has that same, that same feel to it. I don't know which one came first, but, uh,
2: yeah, this is another, you know, look at suburbia, you know. Which, I mean, basically, I guess if you were to call this album like a concept album, it would be about teenagers or people living in the suburbs and their individual experiences. And I like the fact that it's not something like uh, the Monkees' Pleasant, Val- Pleasant Valley Sunday that's going to sort of you know, absolutely take, take the mickey out of, out of uh, their fans and say, oh, your life is banal now by my record. It's, it's basically saying, hey, we're people from the suburbs just like you and uh, we're writing about our experience and, or, or we're writing about characters who have that experience but it's dictated by what we know and what we understand.
3: Yeah. Once, once again, this this is uh, striving for that B-plus life. Um, this is, I love these lyrics. Uh, God forgive the passengers if we should fail to find a penny fountain or a half-off sale. I need a merchant. I've started searching for the Holy Grail. Fighting for the freedom from a common bond to be a barracuda in the guppy pond. So <laughs> So little time for so many things to try on. You know, it's like, I'm going to the mall, and
2: it's I love this life. I don't care, you know, if I'm just a barracuda in a guppy pond, this is, you know. It'd be all too easy to be like, you know, shooting fish in a barrel to make fun of the mall culture, and Lord knows it's been done often enough. But he's speaking about it from the perspective of the guy who lives there.
3: Yeah, although in this song, sort of like Ray Davies would do, he is sort of making fun of it.
2: Well, look, yeah, but only, you know, if... It's maybe like in a slight gentle way, but it's not taking it to pieces. He's not being the pitchfork of, uh, of no. songwriters here. It's, that's anyway, yeah, the way I said, I guess.
3: It's, it's, it's a it's a tongue-in-cheek uh, homage
4: to
2: that, that life, I guess. Now, you already mentioned the song Laser Show. Oh, yeah, are going to the Laser Show.
1: Oh, yeah, are going to the Laser Show.
2: No, we're down to the show. You know, we don't want to sort of discuss it too much, but I think <laughs> that for me, the reason why doesn't work is it's because it is pure pastiche this is almost like someone's gone and said hey we challenge you write a song to this brief write a song that's going to sound like it's of of that type rather than just it didn't come out and i hate to use the word organically but i'm going to i can't think of another one
3: my my my, my problem with this one besides it being kind of boring is that it sort of is a little cynical you know like it, it is it is it goes a little too far with it, like it's it's not a loving tribute. It's just making fun of that. You know, it, it, the planetarium has a laser show, and hey, we're gonna go.
2: And it's kind of it's kind of a kind of a cheap song, I guess. And yet, because it is that sort of well, so it's make, maybe making fun of the whole '60s sensibility, because you know, that song could have been written uh, 30 years before it was, or 35 years before it was, and mm-hmm. it would have been completely sincere. They're saying, all right, well, we're gonna make fun of of uh, that mentality so but this
3: is where that 90s irony becomes really thick yeah and it it, sure. it it loses its charm because of that in my opinion
2: what else okay so another song that probably walks a fine line but it does completely work for me and it, it, it is i'm not sure whether it's uh, collinwood or whether it's schlesinger who wrote it. i imagine it's schlesinger it is the song denise i know this
1: girl named denise she makes me weak at the knees
2: and this song actually sort of what came first I oh, know what what I'm saying I no, actually no. That's this right blurs song number two would have come first but this sounds almost like a um a response musically anyway to song number two by blur
3: yeah oh it's very
2: much of the same has the same energy for mm-hmm. sure and i i like the fact that it's i i guess it's a more well for the time modern take on, I dig you, why don't you dig me type of thing. You know, he's like, yeah. I, know, I know this girl named Denise, she makes me weak at the niece. You know, I mean, that's, he's been sitting around in a, in his room with a pad and a pencil and sort of trying desperately how to be clever with that, but it, but it works. She yeah. drives, she drives a Lavender Lexus. She lives in Queens, but her dad lives in Texas. That's, <laughs> uh,
3: yeah, I, I have to say, I, I, I love this song. Uh, Cause it's just catchy beyond belief. Uh, uh, and it's so fun to sing along. Um, the lyrics, the lyrics are really dumb, and I think it's done that way on purpose.
2: But I mean, but it's but it's If it makes sense, it's dumb in a clever way. It's,
3: it's yeah, yeah. yeah I, I I agree because I mean, you heard that the, the great poetry in that in that uh, Valley of Malls song that the, those lyrics I was I was reading from that song. Yep. You know, they can do that. They can do poetry, but then they write this. Uh, I heard she used to be married. She listens to Puff Daddy. She works at Liberty Travel. She got a heart made of gravel. Mm-hmm. I mean that's like that's like, you know, they probably were laughing hysterically when they wrote that. They're like, really this is so fluffy and, and stupid, but it's perfect for this song because it's it's a it's a song called Denise, you yes. know. It's base
2: we- base level pop, pure pop, you know and it, and it's great for that. Other thing I sort of hadn't mentioned but that's an example of the song of, of a song where they're definitely trying to make it sound modern, uh, well, like you know, 90s of the time when it was written. You know, and so it's got that response to Blur's number 2 song and yet they're bringing in the 60s sensibility with with oh shabby sh- oh shabby do uh, sha la-, la 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 type of um. <laughs> Oh beautifully yeah. done beautifully done <laughs> and it, it, it's you know it's got this great sort of guitar riff that's very 90s and yet they're doing that sha la 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 which is I, I think is more piss take than than uh, uh, homage but it's still sort of it works in that whole package they they manage to walk that fine line and you know, unlike something like laser show which is real complete throwaway and and could have been left off and should have been a b-side or maybe not even that. But uh, <laughs> this, this sort of is going for maybe similar territory, but... But it's done it's done so much better. It is. It is, definitely. Okay, so one other thing that I wanted to uh, bring up uh, is we're, we've already sort of gone and mentioned that this is a very summer-sounding album. And, oh, yes. um, of course, it's interesting that... Uh, I mean, okay, the band were, you know, from New York. I mean, okay, I understand that the band... You know, they came from various parts, and I think, you know, one of them was from uh, Jersey and uh, the other, uh, some of the other members from other parts of the states. But I think they formed in, in Queens and New York. And yet, right. to me, I hear this, and until I sort of knew that, I just presumed that they are a Californian band. It sounds to me, because it's a summery sounding album and they're a summery sounding band, I just sort of presume that you associate, ah, the sounds of summer. American, right, they must be from California. It's It's an easy sort of thing to make a lazy association with. The Beach Boys, but the harmonies on the album and others—they're not layered with that same sort of style or complexity. But there's definitely Californian feel. You—you have to make that Beach Boys comparison. And
3: you do, and and you hear it really well in the song. It must—it must be summer.
1: It must be summer. Cause the days are long, and I your number. God Instead I'm at searchin' with the cow start sight it must be some more something
2: falling apart I tried your... I was lately I was hoping you were going you were going to start talking about this Oh, I'm, How... oh, I'm, I'm all yeah, I was coming to that make no mistake I just sort of wanted <laughs> to sit I wanted to set the stage and uh, this that song and the album in general—it sounds to me like it, it takes me back, as I'm sure it does you, to you know lying lying down on on the sand at the beach or on the grass of the public pool, and you have your little tinny AM radio, and yep. you just expect this song to be pelting out. Yeah,
3: and yeah, the, the, the one thing that gives it away that, that it's not from California—I mean, because it sounds just like you know it should be—it has that you know Birds uh, Beach Boys sound. Um, is the lyrics, you know, the, the second verse. I try your sister on the Jersey Shore. She said you might be stopping by, but she's just not sure. So I call your mother on the Long Island Sound. She said it must be summer because you're never around. I mean, those are very East Coast references right there. Oh, okay. Um, but, and, and there's a different kind of uh, summer feel when you talk about the East Coast versus California. Because in California, you can go to the beach in January. You can go to the beach any time of year you want you know if it's the jersey shore or the long island sound you're you're not going there except for maybe 3 4 months out of the year and those are very special months and mm-hmm. this is this song really points that out like it makes you nostalgic even even if it, if you just went last year you know if you live in in those areas today and it's like november and you're hearing
2: this song you're like oh i remember just a few months ago i was it was summer it was great you know I, I saw, it's interesting, I'm glad I'm getting this perspective from you, because you know I have sort of not really hadn't been aware of that West Coast versus East Coast.
3: Uh, oh yeah, the Coast, East Coast, the, the New, New, York, Jer- New York, New Jersey area, you know, summer is only three months long. Right. You know, out here in California, where I am, summer
2: is nine months long. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was, see, the, the, but it's, it's great that you bring up sort of like the lyrical approach to that, because... I had sort of hadn't made the West Coast-East Coast separation, but what I had gone and done was sort of thought, right, oh, okay, in keeping with the rest of the album where they're sort of like having a, a bit of a raised eyebrow approach. And I sort of, the song that I'd gone and compared this to, even though it's not, it's not really as dark as this song, but it's taking a different approach to summer, is Elvis Costello's The Other Side of Summer, which is a very dark and cynical song, but of course taken with a Beach Boys melody and in fact the album that it comes off um now I've gone and forgotten it but the the second of the Warner Brothers albums anyway but I'll, I'll remember it soon soon enough uh but that that whole is a very it returns to very very dark Elvis Costello territory and It Must Be Summer is not a dark song like like that but it's not a it's not in the west coast Californian Beach Boys tradition of um Polishing up the boards and hitting the waves. It's you know, um, the sun is shining till it's dead and gone, and it must be summer because I can't go on. And it's
3: yeah, and it's, then he's the, the big refrain: this the sun is beating me senseless. I feel defenseless,
2: like a dying lamb. You know, like that's that that's <laughs> the Beach Boys would not sing that. No, they would not. No, they would not. You sort of got to wonder though: is it just is it because of that East Coast sign, or, or is it because you know? 17 18 year old teenagers and uh, the girlfriend isn't around and he's being whiny about it and he hasn't gone out and sort of gotten on with his life and enjoying the sun and he's just sort of he's focusing on on uh, the girl of his dreams and she's not there and he's just a teenage oh. thing
3: it's a i think it's a teenage thing definitely um i just want to mention quickly that musically i'm, I'm surprised that they're uh that they got away with it. Um, this song—it must be summer. Sounds exactly like a bird song called a uh, Feel a Whole Lot Better When You're Gone." It's, it's-
2: uh, yeah. Actually, I hadn't—I hadn't thought about that. I mean, it's certainly. I guess because uh, unlike the um, the opening um, the opening motif, which has got that sort of jangly birds feel, but the rest of it has sort of got that '90s overdriven guitar thing, and maybe that's how they got away with it. I don't know.
3: I guess so, but, but um, go, go and uh, take a second to listen to i Feel a Whole Lot Better by The Birds. It's
2: it's, it's, it's my favorite Bird song.
3: Oh, so you know yeah. it very well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it's pretty remarkable
2: how much it sounds like it, in my opinion. Right. I, was, I was sort of thinking, I, I mean, look, I don't watch a whole lot of sitcom TV. In fact, I don't watch anything apart from, you know, old 60s sport or 70s sitcoms, if I can get my hand you know watching mash or or, or get smart but it sounds to me like the opening refrain sounds like it comes out of some american tv show opening theme i can't quite picture it but it hmm. uh, I, I i'm not quite sure um what was it, what was the show that uh, they might be giants wrote the uh opening uh, opening um theme for malcolm in the middle uh, was that you're not the boss of me now yeah that's that one I don't know why I have some sort of relationship to that. I'm not quite sure why, but it just sounds like it belongs in some opening TV show theme. I'm not quite sure. I can see that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, So look, overall, uh, it's, you know, we, uh, this is obviously an album that we both love and this is obviously why we're discussing it. So any final thoughts, any uh, other song that you really strongly wanted to bring up that we hadn't discussed yet?
3: Um I think we we hit the the main bullet points. I I mean the whole thing the whole thing is great with the exception of, you know, oh, <laughs> mm. uh, I really like troubled times a lot. When you think you
1: found something worth holding on to we're reaching for attention hoping she would notice you collecting bottles and thrown away cans like she was returnable one day would refill your hands how she loved you
2: all you they are oh, gorgeous yeah that's um I, i'm glad that you brought that up i've forgotten to mention that because uh, i love i love it when a song uh, from a musical perspective we haven't sort of discussed as much but i love where an acoustic guitar drives a pop song and it just adds some really strong muscle into the into the middle of the song because often like you can get a, a great jangly electric guitar sound but it the the acoustic guitar sort of brings in in some of the low end and yes. it just, it really adds something. It, it just puts some weight on the bones of the song.
3: And I also like uh, Go Hippie, which is a kill, oh, yeah. killer guitar solo at the end of that.
2: Right. And that's the other thing is because they're not really known as a guitar solo type of uh, band, you know. And uh, there's,
3: a, there's a couple of, yeah, that's a, that's a hard rocker though,
2: Go it, Hippie. It is. It is. It, it, and yet it still sounds possibly because of Collingwood's voice that um, it, it still sounds like a Fountains of Wayne song, and yet it does distinguish itself from a lot of what else is on the album.
3: Yeah, um, and then two sort of throwaway songs that I like so much better than Laser Show. Like, Denise is a throwaway song to me, but it's great. Yeah. These ones, these two are in the same boat, in my opinion. Um, Hat and Feet, and uh, uh, yeah. what's the other one? Um, Lost in Space is another one where it's just pure pop. Yep. Yeah. Like, it, it, lost in space to me seems like it took like 30 seconds to write
2: <laughs> which is not something you'd say about the rest or, or, or a good chunk of these songs
3: definitely i was just going to say just because because i say it took probably took 30 seconds to write doesn't mean anything bad about it at all i i greatly
2: admire that song you know right but yeah because a, a lot of the other songs at least from a lyrical perspective sound like they you know one of them got up in the morning and sat by his um, with a pen and Pad and sort of, no, that doesn't work, and no, this doesn't work, and what am I trying? And they labored over it, but the song doesn't sound labored. But I often can sort of pick where a song sounds like it's been inspired, and they put it out in five, ten minutes. Or whether they've spent a lot of time crafting, because some of those lyrics are beautifully crafted. Yes. And of course, Absol- mind to Adam or, or Chris, if you're listening to this podcast, and you know, thank you. Please feel free to write in and tell me I'm full of shit. And So <laughs> no, 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 we popped that one out in five minutes, and no, 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 you don't know what you're talking. About. <laughs> oh. I don't know.
3: I-, I-, I wasn't there when they wrote them, but no. shame. Um, that, those are my final thoughts on the on the record.
2: All right, so that's been a really, really wonderful conversation, Ben. Uh, I'm I'm glad that uh, we eventually did get round to doing this conversation on Fountains of Wayne and uh, this album. I know that in America, Stacy's Mom or Stacy's Mum, as we would say in this part of the world, was very popular. I don't seem to recall, but then again, I haven't really sort of like been listening to what's been big in top forty. I don't recall Stacy's Mom being uh, played on the public access station the same way that uh those earlier songs that i mentioned were but um certainly oh. I, I love the rest of those those albums uh, did you ever listen to um uh their album of uh, b-sides and 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 songs that ended up on other projects and the like called oh, i've forgotten the name it's got the oh, i've got the picture in my head i'm getting old ben uh, with, with all the all the cars piled up on top of each other so that album called b-sides
3: yeah, I uh, was just looking at that. I have not heard it. Uh, um, have...
2: there's, there's, there's a few ordinary songs, but there's um, some really killer ones. I think uh, there, in particular there's a song on it called Moraine, which um, is an absolute killer single. I'm wondering whether that ever sort of got released. I think that might have been like the one new song that they put out with with uh that album and uh certainly yeah. for, like stacy's mom it's uh it, it's it's a lot faster because I mean, normally their songs are known for being you know slow to mid-tempo and this is one of the few songs that i can recall that's really fast and uh it, it's just a, a lot of fun really a, to- another great lyrical song you'll, you'll dig it you'll really dig it yeah i definitely want to hear that by the way that album was called out of state plates that's the one that's the one yeah I, i've got it on my shelf but once again i'm 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 old and i don't remember what i had for breakfast this morning so <laughs> that's okay there's
3: a um there's one song that i have heard from that that record it's called i want an alien for christmas
2: yes yes oh, so that's, that would have been was that one he wrote for uh for colbert
3: um i don't know it, it's just a it's a single okay it's a non- right. non-album single right okay so uh, i've that's the one I've heard from that record,
2: but okay. yeah, it's a double album. Wow, look at this—thirty-one songs. I mean, there neither neither album goes for like you know seventy-five minutes. I think it could have all fitted on on the one, or maybe just a little bit over one. But you know, and there's a few ordinary songs, but there's a lot of really good things on there, and I'm really glad that I have it. But but yeah, mm-hmm. no, look, they're, they're they're a band which uh, I continue to maintain interest in, and I look forward to them putting out something new over the next couple of years or so. I believe from what I read in an interview uh, earlier on this year that uh chris is going to be doing a solo album so um uh, hopefully uh, that that'll be something uh, that will be i don't know i, I wonder if it'll be in a poppy vein something completely different but uh, uh yeah we need we
3: need new fountains
2: of wayne we do we do indeed we need we need a uh, lot more great pop songwriters hopefully maybe adam Schlesinger will come out with a solo record and then they'll come back refreshed, and we'll give us uh, something more. It'll be uh, whatever, twenty years. Hopefully, yeah. by the time they get to their next record, from the time they uh, release their first. So that's some longevity there. But you know, that seems to be a typical thing. You know, five or six albums in twenty years. Holy moly, the Beatles did thirteen albums and fifteen albums worth of material in within seven. What? What gives, guys? Come on, <laughs> get an album out why aren't you the beatles uh, gosh all right so look thanks very much ben for uh, joining me again on uh, love that album we won't leave it to, um you know, as long as we did to uh, the fourth the fourth one because you know, we need to make you a five-timer but um, yes. before before we go uh, just quickly give a shout out once again how can people find all time top 10 with you and numbers girl All
3: right. Well, All Time Top 10 can be found at alltimetop10.podomatic.com, P-O-D-O-M-A-T-I-C.com, and uh, also iTunes, and uh, the archive page is over at Mixcloud. And uh, yeah, look for Top 10 Songs About Hard Times with your
2: uh, co-host, Morris Burshtinsky. Yeah, thank you. Looking forward to uh, hearing that. That'll be Next week from the time that we're recording, but it'll be last week from the time that this goes out, if that makes any sense. I have seen your future, as I <laughs> keep saying. Um, okay, so looking forward to uh, hearing that episode. And uh, please give some love to all-time top 10 uh, podcast. It's uh, always in my ear holes on uh, on, uh, just about every week, maybe not hip-hop. on the weeks when you're doing the hip hop sort of stuff, but you know, otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, we it's just, in my in my holes every week. So we just did hip hop songs of the eighties. You're missing out on some good stuff. Oh, well, you know, uh, do, does anyone go and pick uh, the Sugar Hill Gang's uh, "Rappers Delight"? Now that's from the seventies, actually. Oh, really? Yes, sir. Oh, well, there you go. So, I mean, that's that's one song that I like, but uh, well, yeah. <sighs> never mind. That's uh, okay. Not for everybody. Uh, but, uh, but but you know 100 170 episodes at 171 you know it's it's not I'm not doing too badly Deadman. man.
3: Yes, we appreciate your support, and we appreciate every time you come on. And we're going to do number six soon enough.
2: Huzzah! Looking forward to that. So, yeah. um, all right. So I should I'll make a quick word as to what we've got coming on to episode 77 of Love That Album. That will be the July episode and it's a very very special one uh not that i think that any of my shows uh not special because i always get wonderful people on and we always talk about albums that we love but this is going to be an episode commemorating the 40th anniversary of an album that is very important in my life and anyone who's my age and was living in Uh, australia in 1975 we're going to be talking about skyhook's ego is not a dirty word from 1975 i cannot believe that this album is 40 years old and then once again ben obviously this is not something that would uh you would know anything about but for people my age living in australia this is like saying we're commemorating the 40th anniversary of i don't know uh Springsteen's Born to Run. Yes, correct. This album, Skyhooks, it, really not to underplay this. Skyhooks were the biggest band in the land, and they they yeah. had a huge sense of humour in all that they wrote about, and they were absolutely they were the, yeah really the biggest band in the land. I don't need to sell this to my Australian listeners, but if you live outside Australia and you want to know what the fuss is about then uh, next month I'll be joined by two fellow Skyhooks fans, Rhys Lett, uh, who appeared last year on Love That Album, talking about Jellyfish's Spilt Milk album, and my really good friend and regular co-host Michael Persch from Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide podcast, uh, will be discussing uh, Ego's Not a Dirty Word, their second album. So that'll be next time on Love That Album, looking forward to your company. And once again, thanks very much, Ben, for uh, joining me for this episode round.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me. I had a fabulous time, and uh, I never uh, dug so deep into a, a pop album like that before and found just things that made me love it even
2: more. Yeah, well, look, I, I was wondering for a while, thinking, will I have enough to say about this? And I, think we, I think we came up with um, quite a fair amount of stuff, so uh, that's, that's been yeah, that's- great.
3: It's like everything Everything that they do, there's um, there's little things underneath that, uh, you know, if you look closely, you can see the subtleties and all the all of the little gems that come from a great pop album like Utopia
2: Parkway. Right. So if you've not listened to it enough, go back and uh, give it some love. All right. Yeah. So uh, once again, thanks very much, Ben, and uh, give my love to Numbers
3: Girl. <laughs> Will do. Thanks, Morris.
2: All right. Cheers, Ben, and thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next month.
5: Cheers.